Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. Hello, good evening, good afternoon. It's the 1st of July and we're back with your favorite show, Give the People What They Want, brought to you by People's Dispatch. It's Zoe and me as always and Globetrotter. Vijay from Globetrotter, of course, on yet another one of his Globetrotting rounds for reporting. We'll hear about more. We'll hear more about that, of course, next week when he comes back on the show. We have a very uh, interesting uh, show for you this week. Some of it, as usual, depressing news, of course, but some of it also indicating and showcasing the extent of uh, resistance, the extent of people's struggles across the world, which is what we bring you on uh, Give the People What They Want uh, Every Week at uh, People's Dispatch. So uh, today, of course, I mean, the past few days, in fact, we've uh, been hearing a lot about uh, the NATO summit in Madrid. And it's, you know, the headlines at all the major media across the world have been carrying headlines, statements, uh, the big leaders, speeches, etc, etc. Very uh, curious summit, this, of course, because it's not just another NATO summit. It's happening in the context of the Russia-Ukraine war, and is also happening at a time when uh, NATO conducts one of its uh, regular re-evaluations, so to speak, and releases documents, strategic documents uh, that are basically are based on the fruits of that re-evaluation and all those processes. I really urge you to sort of read this document. It's uh, freely available. It's a very interesting document because it kind of tries to put NATO's best foot forward uh, in every sense of the term. And we know that uh, NATO, of course, suffered a massive credibility crisis last year after it withdrew from Afghanistan. In the statement, we kind of see this straining for relevance that uh, NATO has been sort of conducting and now is almost uh, very happy to conduct, seems to be rejoicing to conduct this uh, you know, stretching for relevance in the context of the war. So there are all the usual statements, of course, of you know being a defensive alliance, which is kind of uh, highly ironic considering what we talk about. But more importantly, I think two two or three aspects that we need to note. One, of course, is the fact that, uh, you know, there has been a concrete commitment to militarizing Europe. And this is something, for instance, that people across Europe protested in the week before. About 30,000 people hit the streets of Madrid against this. And they were really very concerned about this because you know, as the summit progressed, we saw the kind of commitments that came out, you know, bases in Poland, 300,000 soldiers as part of the alliance across the continent, you know, new missile deployments, more countries being brought under the NATO military ambit or being the security or military presence being beefed up. And this was all done very casually as if to sort of justify, a, you know, as if there was a justification in the form of the Russia-Ukraine war. But the fact is that what we're, see, what we're seeing is a considerable increase in the militarization of Europe, which definitely is not good for anybody at all. The other important highlight, of course, is the fact that NATO has identified China as a key uh, rival, you know, call it rival, you can call it a threat, whatever. Again, they've made some uh, strange statements where they seem to say that China is out to threaten the North Atlantic uh, countries and their alliance. There's obviously no real evidence of that, but they make it seem that there is some kind of uh, effort underway by China on this. And for this reason, they've sort of identified China as a rival. They've said, said they will take XYZ steps. And I know one thing we have been talking about is that it's bad enough that NATO exists. And that is what a lot of protesters said last week. Their demand was for the abolition of NATO because NATO makes the world a dangerous place. That was their claim. Now, so as many observers have pointed out, it's bad enough NATO exists. And now we have the 
prospect of NATO actually expanding globally. NATO, uh, which is, again, note the name, it's a North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's a so-called defensive uh, alliance. But with this kind of an agenda, the question really is, is NATO set to expand? Is NATO set to become a global uh, alliance? And these are really the questions that I think keep all of us awake at night, because one thing we do know is that we do not need more militarization as far as the world is concerned. The U.S. already has 800 bases. There is an alliance called AUKUS. There is a Quad. There's stuff happening in West Asia. In so many places, you know, the footprints of these powers are causing havoc. And now we see that NATO is joining the phrase. So all said and done, this a very uh, strange and weak, a lot of dangerous prospects for the future. We really need to sort of see and uh, you know, think what will happen. And uh, uh, I think it's important that all of us sort of read this document to really get a sense of what the future is ahead for all of us, not just for the NATO countries. So Prashant, you mentioned something interesting there, which is about NATO's potential expansion. It's looking eastward. There's also, I know, a part that talks about the southern word, uh, looking and the expansion of NATO, its actions towards the south, towards the African continent. As you mentioned, this is taking place, the NATO summit, in a very crucial moment in the in the, in the the context of the region. Can you talk a little bit about this southern strategy and what's been happening with regards to Northern Africa? Right. So uh, I think, uh, Zoe, what you said, we have a story by our colleague Pawan on this, uh, and it actually connects two very important aspects. One is the massacre of refugees in Africa, which took place you know, in the border region between Spain and Morocco, two regions, Ceuta and Melilla. And, uh, you know, this, on the one hand, you know, it has been portrayed as just another incident of refugees. As always, <clears throat> uh, you know, the Spanish government, in fact, painting these refugees as dangerous people who are out to threaten the security of the Spanish state, as opposed to people who are fleeing from war and conflict, which is the case with refugees across the world. But the, more importantly, this actually connects very closely to uh, what NATO is trying to sort of establish in the South and the fact that NATO is identified, especially at Spanish insistence, that there has to be focus on its southern flank as well. So it's not enough that there is focus on the eastern flank or for, for that matter, the global flank. There has to be a specific focus on the southern flank as well. And this, of course, means Africa. And this basically means militarized action against those who are struggling, those who are suffering due to the policies exactly or due to the policies of these very same uh, countries of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And of course, Spain having a crucial partner here in Morocco, whose role in this also needs to be highlighted because uh, Morocco recently, as we know, recently recognized uh, Israel in return, got the US nod uh, for its occupation of Western Sahara. And now at that point, many people said, oh, this was just Donald Trump being Donald Trump, uh, the Abraham Accords, all, you know, that's all uh, just Trump and Jared Kushner doing stuff. But we see basically that this is the foundation on which Joe Biden and his administration have continued their policies. Uh, Biden, uh, you know, it's uh, many reports say that the U.S. administration has pretty much uh, urged Spain to sort of also sanctify or sanction Morocco's occupation as well. And this has led to further synergy between uh, Morocco and Spain. Morocco now acting as a gendarme of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in suppressing many of these refugees as well. And I think, like we keep talking about uh, time and again, the important thing here, of course, is that many of these refugees are fleeing from war and conflict, are fleeing from the policies of either these countries or corporations, big, uh, you know, big corporations based in these countries whose exploitative 
policies whose extractive policies have led to huge amounts of destruction of you know environmental destruction of course of livelihood destruction as well so in this context you know i think it's very important to note that these two issues are very closely connected we cannot see the brutal in fact the visuals of these incidents in which the refugees were killed how they were treated are extremely brutal but we cannot see this as anyway in separate from nato from its policies from the fact that what they're trying to do is sort of build you know use nato's article 5 for instance uh, to ensure nato protection against these poor refugees who are coming over so uh, it's a very unfortunate question here in the sense that the power of the most the most powerful alliance in the world the military might of this force is basically being used at some of the most desperate at some of the most poor at some of the most vulnerable people in the world all in the name of uh say defending our sovereignty and defending our territory so there's hardly anything a very few things that are more ironic uh, than this zoe in today's world the fact that nato is standing guard and the moroccan forces are standing guard against the so called disruptive refugees yeah i mean it was really a, a tragic week in terms of the humanitarian crisis of migration on our world today um in the same week that this massacre happened of over you know dozens of refugees in in this border region um a similar horrific tragedy occurred on the US Mexico border uh, over 50 migrants died um they were inside a trailer of a truck um they were discovered by um sheriffs in in San Antonio Texas um they had essentially died of dehydration um you know for many this is a shock that so many that dozens of migrants could die in such horrific consequences and conditions and you know it's important to say that this is the worst death toll of a kind of this kind of tragedy that's happened in recent years um but the the fact that migrants are taking such risky routes such risks to really cross the border and and try to migrate is not new um and it has been getting worse in recent years but the the path whether it's from north africa to europe or whether it's through central america to the united states the risks that people are taking um in order to flee from conflict from war from economic deprivation from poverty from violence um these these routes are are horrific and the repression that they face from the global north countries from the united states from the eu uh is is why they're forced to take these these sort of routes um you know it's not it's only hasn't been so many months since we saw the images of the Haitian migrants being whipped uh by border guards at the border um the entryway for these migrants into these countries is so militarized is so um you know under surveillance that they're forced to take these extremely unsafe routes whether it's by going in the trailer of a truck where they have no air conditioning, no ventilation, no access to water, which eventually led to the death of over 50 people in one moment, um or whether it's they, you know, trying to cross the Mediterranean in very unsafe boats. I mean, this is something we're seeing time and time again, and it's no longer just a coincidence. It's no longer just an anomaly that these things are happening and it needs to be taken very seriously it's interesting that you know in Biden's summit of the Americas which took place in Los Angeles um in the beginning of June migration was the one of the core topics um but you know he's he preached when he came into office that he would have a much more humane migration policy towards central america 
And really what we've seen is that this is not true um, and that the same policy of militarization of the border, of extremely firm stance against migrants has remained. Um, and that its own policies towards the region are of course is what's driving this immigration uh, and its own policy of if, even what it carried out in the Sum of the Americas of exclusion of stigmatizing countries that have really tried to attack migration, for example, from a much more root cause perspective. How do we address the, the causes of economic disparity in these countries that drives so many people to migrate? Um, and so this is really, really key. Um, you know, the message of, of Kamala Harris to, to Guatemala just uh, a year back was that don't come. Um, this is their response to these countries. They don't have any other response. And the sad thing is, is that these types of tragedies will continue occurring. Um, these will only become more numerous as people are more and more desperate. As you mentioned, one of the motivating, one of the primary motivating factors for immigration is actually environmental devastation. Um, in Central America, which is the area where most of these migrants came from, uh, they were from Mexico, they're from Guatemala and Honduras, are areas similar to the Sahel that have been ravaged because of their natural resources, that have been ravaged by transnational corporations. Um, these lands, which were once fertile, have now been rendered almost you know, useless, or they have been taken over by companies. And so people who used to subside on this land are no longer able to do so. Um, it's extremely tragic. And, you know, of course, um, in Honduras, for example, one of the countries where most migrants have uh, been uh, fleeing from, now there is a progressive president. But of course, these changes and these economic structural changes take time. Um, and similar with Mexico, Mexico has taken a lot of steps to ensure a better life for people within Mexico. But this is a long process. And um, unless the United States is actually committed um, to ensuring a safe passage for migrants, providing protections for them when they come, you know, not implementing their, their policies of militarization, of family separation, of, you know, this hard line against immigration, there's really, uh, there's really no way forward. And so you know, one of the major calls of, from the People's Summit that took place concurrently to the Summit of the Americas in early June was that migrants in the United States need full amnesty and they need access to full rights. This is part and parcel of addressing this humanitarian tragedy. Um, people must not be forced to cross in unsafe conditions and they must not be forced to put their lives at risk to make this crossing. Right, so it's interesting you mentioned Honduras, of course, because, and at least before I joined People's Dispatch, every time I saw news about these migrant caravans, they'd always start in Honduras. And most of this reporting actually had very little context about why people left Honduras. It was just like, oh, okay, people in Honduras just like to leave and go to the, you know, go north, leaving everything aside. So that seemed to be the impression. But uh, Honduras marked a very important anniversary recently, which is perhaps behind some of these issues that you mentioned, the 13th anniversary of the coup. So could you talk about actually what links uh, this kind, these kind of crisis and what happened in 2009? It's so connected and it's so important. Um, I'm, so, I'm so glad you brought that up. On June 28th, it was the 13th year anniversary of the coup that was carried out against Manuel Zelaya, um, the democratically elected government of Manuel Zelaya. This was a coup that was orchestrated by the United States with uh, the conservative sectors in Honduras amid a moment where Honduras was getting closer to countries in the region, to the Alba bloc, 
Um, it was you know, beginning economic cooperation agreements with Venezuela, joining Petrocaribe. It was a moment of great hope and opportunity in Latin America and the Caribbean and Honduras uh, was trying to join this this uh, cooperation, this integration. Um, and the conservative sectors in the United States said no. They carried out the coup against Manuel Zelaya. Mass protests took place across um, Honduras, people on the streets for months. A lot of repression happened. Several people were killed during these protests. Um, and it was a, a really a turning point, not only in Honduras, um, but also in the continent. And so Honduras, after 2009, uh, the, there started to be some of the largest waves of migration out of the country. Um, and so some of the policies that were enacted following the coup um, were, for example, against women and their right to uh, bodily autonomy, um, you know, for example, banning the morning after pill, taking other measures that would inhibit women from exercising their full rights. A lot of uh, agreements were signed with transnational corporations, as I mentioned earlier, giving concessions to companies to operate in Honduran territory. One of the most infamous um, agreements was the uh, economic special economic development zones, which essentially gave autonomy to foreign investors over parts of Honduran land. And so this made a untenable situation. It you know caused the migration of tens of thousands of Hondurans to the United States, it created a situation of further inequality, violence, and extreme poverty. Um, before Xiomara Castro took uh, office in Honduras, the poverty level was 70% of people were in poverty in Honduras. A horrible number. It is a very, very tragic uh, situation there. However, in uh, November 2021, Xiomara Castro won the elections. It was, you know, many saw it as a reverse of these 12 years of coup, of dictatorship that were taking place in the country. And it's really important to highlight that uh, when Xiomara Castro was commemorating the 13 years of coup um, as the first progressive leader really in Honduras since the coup, uh, she remembered the support of nations like Venezuela, of Paraguay. Um, there was a very important ceremony honoring the support of Hugo Chavez um, who was a key ally during the during the coup against Manuel Zelaya. Um, and so this is extremely important. I think it also marks the moment that we're seeing right now in Latin America, where there is a significant shift towards progressive politics, towards a policy of integration. I think the Summit of the Americas and the boycott by progressive leaders like Xiomara Castro, like Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, is a clear sign of this. And Xiomara Castro has only been in office for six months, but she's clearly taken important steps towards putting forward this progressive platform, making the lives of people in Honduras better, and also trying to, to build and rebuild this moment of regional integration and build Latin American and Caribbean um, autonomy. Right, Zoe. And of course, we can't talk about Honduras without remembering Berta Cáceres as well, uh, the intrepid activist who was very integral to all of these struggles, as you yourself have written so often, who was assassinated in 2016. Recently, her, uh, what do you, David Castillo, one of those involved in the assassination, was sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison. Uh, organizations, of course, saying there's a long battle ahead. But this is something we cover quite often at People's Dispatch, the uh, struggles, the persecution faced by those who fight for justice, those who fight for uh, the truth to be revealed. 
those who refuse to, those who speak truth to power, as the cliche goes in some senses. But this is not actually a cliche because there are actually lives at line, people who spent decades, years and decades striving to ensure that, you know, what is what the powerful attempt to hide actually comes out. And in we have unfortunately in India seen two recent instances of such people being persecuted, of course. One of course, one of course, a very prominent activist, Tista Settlewad, of uh, the state force hails from the state of Gujarat, and we know that uh, in 2002 there was a very powerful religious riot, a very anti-Muslim riot that took place in the state of Gujarat. Uh, you know, hundreds of people killed. Of course, the damage to uh, the damage to buildings, the damage to infrastructure, the damage to lives and livelihoods, difficult to difficult to even describe. And uh, of course, what happened then was a very sustained attempt at actually suppressing those who fought against, those who fought for justice for these victims. Now, of course, the important thing to remember is that Narendra Modi, who is the Prime Minister of India now, was the Chief Minister of Gujarat then. Many of those associated who are part of that regime are still active in uh, at, at various levels of power in India. And Tista was somebody who sort of refused to say that, okay, the past is past, let's move on. And she continuously fought to make sure that the victims of those religious riots got some kind of justice, you know, got some kind of accountability for what had happened to themselves or their loved ones. And for that, she's endured a lot of persecution. For that, she's endured a lot of, uh, you know, allegations. She's been accused of all kinds of crimes. Uh, recently, the Supreme Court heard a petition. Uh, she was associated with it, dismissed the petition, and then went on to say something which many observers have found very strange. That it went on to say that certain people had kept the pot boiling, that was a phrase they used, over this issue, over the issue of the 2002 religious riots. And, you know, it called for uh, the, such people to be investigated. And what we see is that the very next day, Tista Settlewad, along with two other people who were involved in this struggle for justice, were arrested. They have been charged with forgery. They have been charged with attempt to conspiracy. These are charges which, especially the attempt to conspiracy is a charge which activists all over the world like his face. And, uh, you know, she's still right now in prison. We'll hear from her. We'll hear from here on the second what happens. But what we are going to, what we are definitely seeing is a prolonged phase in which her work will be stopped, in which there will be attempts to persecute her. So that's, of course, one uh, instance. The other instance of Mohammed Zubair, an Indian journalist, uh, the uh, what do you call the owner of a fact-checking website or the co-founder sorry of a fact-checking website called Alt News which does some amazing work debunking a lot of misinformation that comes out uh, in in social media for instance and even in the corporate media. Now Zubair was arrested apparently for a tweet. Now this tweet was here was something he had made in 2018 where he posted the screenshot from a movie from 1983 and he made a joke about it and. What happened was some days ago, a Twitter account with zero followers, I believe at that time, uh, tagged the police and said that this person is hurting my religious sentiments because he posted this tweet. And what do you know? On Monday, we see that Mohammed Zubair uh, has been arrested and charged with offending, I believe, religious uh, sentiments and all that. So he too is in jail, uh, still not out, but legal process going on, of course. Uh, citizens organizations, journalistic organizations have roundly condemned this. They have called for his release. Uh, India's press freedom uh, numbers have been quite bad in recent times. There seems to journalists across the country say that they feel, you know, they no longer feel safe at working. There's been all kinds of uh, you know, targeted attempts 
to sort of coerce journalists from various sections, of course. But there's been all kinds of attempts and the Indian government has, of course, has obviously refused to answer any of these allegations. It has said everything is hunky-dory. Incidentally, the same day Mohammed Zubair was arrested, uh, Narendra Modi uh, pledged uh, you know, fealty to freedom of expression both online and offline. So a lot of people uh, pointing out as yet another one of those ironies that make up India. But really the question I think for a lot of uh, people here is what is the future of activism? What is the future of the freedom of expression in the country? How do journalists, how do activists continue to go around doing their work if they face this kind of, uh, you know, if they face these kind of challenges to their work, if any attempt by them to reveal the truth is pushed back in this manner. So tough times, of course, for India. But uh, interestingly enough, people like these times seem to be uh, you know, uh, as enthusiastic, as committed to continuing their work as ever. Well, I know the International People's Assembly released a statement in support of Tista and identifying that her struggle and the persecution against her is, is shared by so many across the world. And I think it's always so important to remember that, that so many people are under attack at this moment and it's always important to, to stand up um, and raise our voices in solidarity. Um, we've said a lot of kind of sad stories today. Um, so I think it's important that we end on a bit of a positive note. Um, yesterday, the uh, indigenous organizations in Ecuador reached an agreement with the national government after 18 days of national strike. This is being hailed as a victory, an important victory, a victory with that has some limits, um, but still is a victory. Um, this national strike had started on June 13th. Uh, organized by large indigenous organizations like Konai and others, Fenosin, and, and it saw a massive support from civil society, from many student organizations, from trade unions. Uh, across the country, in cities and towns, people were on the streets organizing road blockades, part of this national strike. And it, essentially from June 13th, there was a, a set of 10 demands that were made to the government um, amid as many other countries in the region are facing a you know, rapidly deteriorating economic crisis. Um, when Guillermo Lasso took power last year, uh, he inherited a country that had really been ravaged by uh, IMF policies, by neoliberal policies enacted by his predecessor, Lenin Moreno. Um, under Lenin Moreno, Ecuador took out a huge IMF loan against the wishes of the people. There had been a series of massive mobilizations against this. Guillermo Lasso uh, ran on a campaign platform saying he wouldn't be like Lenny Moreno. He was going to do things differently. He was not going to make the same decisions and implement the same policies as Lenny Moreno. Uh, yet he seems to have been doing similar things, raising fuel prices, um, raising the prices of the basic commodities in the country. And so exactly as what happened with Lenny Moreno, he too saw a response from the streets. So Konai had organized this strike along with these other organizations. They had been mobilizing, as I said, for over 18 days. Pretty tremendous. Um, you know, as I said, people from all walks of life, from different types of organizations. And um, there had been many attempts to, of dialogue. And the first day of the national strike, uh, Leonidas Issa had been arrested. It was a blow kind of to the legitimacy of the Lasso government, seeing that they would just immediately arrest one of the, a leader of one of the largest indigenous organizations amid their mobilization. They quickly had to retract and he was released. Um, and so now after 18 days, they have reached this agreement. Um, 
which does touch on important things such as reducing and fixing the fuel prices, um, giving more funds to, the, uh, to, for example, bilingual education and a lot of other important policies regarding indigenous rights and access to education. Um, there have been agreements also made on employment. And I think it's important to note that this is a, an agreement in 90 days, there's going to be a verification process to see have these agreements been implemented. But what it speaks to is a larger um, disposition of Ecuadorian society to really be on the streets and to hold this government accountable. Um, when Lasso was sworn in, when the voting process happened last year, Andres Arauz lost, people said, okay, this is a defeat for now, but we will be organizing, we will be regrouping, and we are going to be on the streets and making sure that none of these neoliberal policies, none of these anti-people policies can go through. And that's exactly what we're seeing. The people are making good on their word. They're going to be on the streets. They're gonna continue mobilizing, making sure that this is implemented um, and holding the government to account. And so, you know, as they have to endure this conservative government, Guillermo Lasso is a banker, he has his policies, he has his priorities clear, and the people, this is an important moment of, you know, reorganizing and getting back on the streets, regaining the confidence of the people. So I think that's what we're seeing right now. Right. Absolutely. Like you said, Zoe, a, a positive story to wind up. What has been uh, quite a difficult week across the world, but uh, this is also what we do, bring you stories of sometimes topics that are not easy, sometimes topics that are not necessarily, you know, happy but topics that uh, we think that all of us should be talking about should be working on should be thinking about because ultimately all of these stories all of these issues are about our future the struggle for building a better world which so many people across the world are engaged in right now so that's all we have this week from uh, zoe and uh, zoe and i at people's dispatch and the spirit of vijay from globetrotter we'll be back next week with more stories from around the world stories of struggle and stories of victory as well hopefully overcome. we shall overcome